Um, so good to see everybody, everybody here tonight. And what, what a joy it is and, and a privilege to, to lead you guys through such a glorious passage that we have before us uh, tonight. And as, as uh, Jim mentioned, we are going to be focusing in on uh, what I'm calling the, the, the culmination of our, of our Christian walk, um, the ultimate hope that we have as Christians, and, and that is the return of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. So we're going to be taking a look at uh, Revelation 19 um, to, tonight and actually next week as well. Um, join me in prayer, and then we'll get started. <clears throat> God, we thank you for your promises. We thank you that they are sure and true because you are true. You are, you are good. You are God. And uh, as, we, as we talk about your coming, uh, your second coming as our hope tonight, uh, we ask that you would, you would give us strength for, for now. Uh, our our strength, is, strength is in nothing but you and your word. And we can count on your word and we can count on your return. And, and we're so thankful for uh, what you're doing in our lives now. But we, look, we so look forward to and anticipate your, your return. So, so be with us now, Lord, as, as we open your word. Uh, may you speak to us and uh, just, just fill us, Lord, with um, the joys that we have uh, from this passage and from, from this hope. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title, I'm, I'm counting that these are up there. Yep, okay. Uh, the title that, uh, that we have here to, tonight before us is, what, what Will the Outcome Be? And my attempt here is to connect this message to the end of Daniel, and especially uh, Scott's final two messages in Daniel with his, um, his title, How Do You Know? And so, so kind of going in that same direction, Dan, Daniel's overwhelmed, right, at the, at the end of, throughout Daniel, at the end of Daniel, overwhelmed with all of this end of days prophecy, all of these heavy things that just leaves, leaves him floored, literally, and, and we follow up in Revelation 19 to see some of those answers. So, so from Daniel 12, 8, if you'll turn there with me, <clears throat> this is the, the final chapter of Daniel and where we are taking our, our, uh, our title from tonight. So 12, 8. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events. So he, he's just struggling through this, as, as Scott so um, uh, clearly helped us understand through, through his, pass- his messages. And, and he's trying to piece together all that, has, all that he has heard, all the ups and downs that he's being told Israel is going to experience. How is this all going to end? And, and we will we'll find the answers here in, in Revelation 19. And I thought, how, how fitting is it that, is this not often our cry as, as Christians, that, Lord, how, how's all this wickedness that I see around me in this world, how's it all going to work out? God, how, the, the sin that I, I still struggle with every day that I'm waging war with, God, how, how are you going to work these things out for your glory how is it going to be in the end? How are you going to reconcile these things? Or more plainly, how will all of this be made right? 
So what will the outcome be uh, is what we're going to be taking a look at through, through this passage here. And guess what? Daniel knows fully well now what the outcome will be. And, and so do we because of the revelation of God and specifically because of revelation, uh, uh, the revelation of Jesus here in, in the book of Revelation. And the out, that outcome, just to, to give a brief overview of what we're going to talk about today, is the return of our king. We'll spend this week and next looking at what that entails. Um, and a common theme that we're going to see throughout this is God is setting things in its rightful place. That that is ultimately what the outcome is, that he's making things right. So let's turn to Revelation 19 now. And we're going to be picking up in verse 11. Uh, I'll refer back to the first section of Revelation 19 a little bit later um, with uh, the marriage uh, supper of the Lamb. But we're going to be picking up in verse, verse 11 to start off here. So let's read through it. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Excuse me. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed, in, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is a, a, a basic outline of what we're going to be looking at tonight with the, the idea of what will, what will the outcome be. Number one, the return of our king. Number two, the vindication of his people. And number three, the absolute rule of our king. So the return of our king. I just love how this section of scripture starts out. That this is what this is the answer that we have been waiting for. This is what we our eyes have been hoping for, you know. And and as we see that that first that first portion of verse one, that the heavens are going to open up. And I think it's helpful to look at and compare some details between his first and second coming. So we're going to do this a little bit with this um, the, a little first half of the, the uh, message tonight. I want to look at some of the details about his first and compare it with his second coming. Um, th- I think the purpose of his coming is often revealed in some of the accompanying uh, details. So first, first consider how, how different his, his first and second coming are. At, at his first coming... Um, God wrapped himself in the body of a baby, a humble baby, born in a manger. Uh, later on, Jesus rides into to Jerusalem on a donkey as a humble servant. He, he allows himself to be arrested, tried, and, and crucified. A righteous man being humble and allowing his creator, creation to, to do this. 
So, so his, it, we kind of see it that it's hinted, his, his first coming it hints at a humble, the humble nature of his first coming. At his second coming, we see something very different. Instead of the, the details foretelling a humble reentry, we see details describing a conquering king. So as we consider this question, what, what, will, be, what will the outcome be? Um, we'll, we'll take a look at some of the details about his second coming, particularly here uh, uh, first with the heavens being opened. So I saw heaven opened. So, so there's no baby in a manger in his, in his coming this time around. The heavens and clouds unleash the warrior king coming down to do work. That is just such a powerful thing, and, and, and it's in power and great glory, as Jesus says in, in Matthew 24, that he's going to appear at a second coming. To be seen by all for who he is. So the, the sovereign Lord of lords and king of kings is coming in power to set things right. And I think it's important to, to mention, just because there's enough people that would say otherwise here, uh, how does Jesus return? Well, the same way that he ascended, visibly and physically. In, in Acts 1, 1, 9, you know, he, we're told he's coming back that same way. So, so this isn't something to be spiritualized away. Jesus is coming back to this earth to set things straight. And, and we see graphically, graphic pictures of how he's going to do that um, a little bit later in this chapter. But you can count on that. He is coming. The, the heavens opened so that he can, they can make way for, for his return. And then another, the next thing that we see is it says, and behold, a white horse. So there's no humble donkey this time around. There's no humble servant riding on, on a donkey, but instead we see that Jesus rides in with this victorious posture. See, see what, what is pictured here in this, this white um, parading of a, a, of a victorious king is, is what we see in, in the Roman Roman generals. So they would come back from a victory, and if, it was, if they were victorious, they would come and parade through, through their people on this white horse. And so, so what we see here is, is Jesus coming down in his victorious posture on his war horse. And the amazing thing here is, chronologically speaking, the battle hasn't even begun at this point. Jesus is coming down to, to the earth on, in this victory posture. And, and so he, he is able to declare victory because, guess what? In the mind of God, not only has this battle already begun, it's already been won. And, and the, the amazing thing is, this is true even now. That the God that we serve is a God that's already victorious right now, and, and, and he calls us his own. And I'm not trying to say that as like a, a um, boost in your own confidence, but in your confidence in your God. I think that's an important thing, distinction to make in, in, in the TED Talk uh, sermon world that we live in these days, where we're just trying to 
get each other excited. It's not about that. It's knowing concretely that our God is victorious and there's nothing that can change that. And he has invited us to be on his, in his family. So, so we, in, these, in this first uh, portion of verse 11, we, we've discussed what Jesus is doing at his return. Um, he's, he's, he's coming down through the clouds. He's riding a horse. And now John kind of changes a little bit, and he gives us a more defining look at who the writer is who, and getting into his, um, kind of describing his character and what I would call his qualifying characteristics. What makes this writer able and worthy to be the rider on the white horse? See, the, the white horse also, the, the color of the horse points to the, um, the perfectness, the sinlessness, the spotlessness of the rider in, in being Jesus. And then, and then in verse 11, he, he continues, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. So this is his nature and makes him our worthy returning king. But what, uh, what in particular is he being faithful and true to here? And, and I already referenced to this verse, but so we might as well read it now. Matthew 24, 27 through 31. Um, and this is Jesus speaking of, of his second coming. He says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vulture will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels, and with a great trumpet they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So just as Pastor Jim prayed um, in the beginning, we, we are seeing God's promises here. This is a promise that Jesus has made, that he is going to come. And he, here we see that he is faithful and true in nature, but especially in his promise to come back for us, to come back and make things right. And so we, we see that taking place now. And then he continues, and in righteousness, he judges and wages war. So no, again, no suffering servant this time around. He, he's coming back as a mighty warrior king. So he, he's faithful and true to deal with wickedness in his righteousness, because it's in his righteousness that he judges and wages war. This is, this is the, the amazing thing about the, uh, the righteous wrath of God. We can't fathom it because we are so, we're so flawed. It, it, it actually it made me think of um, uh, this incident with, with our son and one of his foster sisters recently. They were in a shopping cart that had two seats, and I think he... Um, he bumped her in the head or something with his head, and uh, he was getting taken away to get his spankings, and, and she was crying. She was hurt, and she, she, she asked, where did, where did they go? And I said, Melissa's taking him to get a spanking, and she, like, perked up. She's like, oh, I'm, I feel better. 
knowing that he was going to be getting his spanking. So that, you know, that's how we are. But the righteous wrath of God is, is perfect. He judges and wages war from a position that we could never do. We, we aren't able to do that. Um, and so it, it makes sense when we, th- we see these, these verses, like, how, how long, O oh Lord, is this going to take place? How long is this wickedness? We, we, we cry out for God's intervention because he's righteous. He's the one that, that is able to, to, to rightfully take care of, of, of the wrongs that we have. And so Psalm 94, 1 through 7, I think is a, is a, a good example of this. It says, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness and vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said the Lord does not see nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. And I get it. It feels this way sometimes. When we live in a world so full of wickedness, like, God, are you not seeing this? Are you not seeing what's happening here? Believe me, he has it all under control. And not one of those things is going to go unpunished. And actually, at the end of this psalm, it says, But the Lord has been my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them in their evil. The Lord, our God, will destroy them. And here he does in Revelation 19. We're seeing the wrath of God being realized in the lives of the wicked. And it's a scary thing. If you're, if you're willing, come back next week and hear more about it. <clears throat> I also think of uh, the martyrs here in, in Revelation 6, 9, and 10. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And, and here we see the fulfillment of that. At the time, they're to- told, be patient, wait. And here, that waiting and patience is not needed anymore. He is coming to set things right. So, so for us, don't grow weary. Stay the course. I, I get how easily it can, it can be to get get downcast in, in this life. This is not our, our, our home. We have to remind ourselves of that. And he is coming to make things right. So continuing on with John's description of our returning king, our warrior king, uh, in verse, verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire. All throughout the Gospels, we see um, his, his eyes are compassionate towards the, the lost as he, he weeps over Jerusalem. 
for unbelief. And now he is filled with righteous judgment. So there's perfect justice with perfect aim in those eyes. The, these eyes speak of his, of his per- perfect vision. That, that's what the flame of eyes is referring to. And it, he perfectly sees all evil, all evil deeds, all evil uh, hearts, all evil intentions. It is all laid bare before him. One of the more impressive things that I, I saw in my military experience was in, in Afghanistan in the um, Joint Special Operations Command Center in, in country there. They, you walk into this place, you have to have the right clearance to get past the first door, and they check you at every door. And then you get in, and it's a, basically a three-story building, um, three-story you know, empty space just up of screens of everywhere in the country that you could ever imagine you, they have eyes on everything going on. And I just thought how impressive that was. But that pales in comparison to the view that God has of the whole world, of the, every intention and every heart and mind. He has visual of those things. And so, so we, as, as, his, as Christians... Don't grow weary. He has sight of everything that you're going through and everything, every evil that we will ever have to come before. And then it continues on. It says, and on his head are many diadems. No crown of thorns on this head this time of suffering, but a ruler's crown is what we see our returning king wearing. What will be the outcome in the end? Our king crowned with the glory fitting for God alone. He is, he is the one that is worthy to come down to earth and do what he's about to do and to bring his bride with him who he has made righteous. There was a time for Jesus as, as a humble servant, but now he is crowned in the glory and victory that is befitting him. He has come to set things right. And take note here, many diadems. Not just one, or not just ten, but many. Every ruler throughout the history of time, as we, you guys saw, as we saw in Daniel, um, how well that was covered, how all the kingdoms of the history of time believe that they were the one, that they were the ruler. Guess what? All of the all of the diadems, all the crowns that they were that they wore in their figurative head, Jesus has taken that as the ruler and as the defeater of all of those, and now He is the one that has many many diadems. Um, this is is uh, mentioned here in in Second Samuel. This is a, a a good example for us to. To see what is what is taking place here, what Jesus is is wearing on his head. So, Second Samuel twelve twenty nine through thirty. So David gathered all the people and went to Rabbah, fought against it and captured it. Then he took the crown of their king from his head, and its weight was a talent of gold, and it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city in great amounts. You see, this is what Jesus is doing here. 
He's coming down as the conquering king, declaring, I have been victorious. I have, I have defeated everything before me, and now I am coming down to do the final, have a final victory, defeat the enemy in its final time. Just such a beautiful picture of his um, sovereign rule as, as our Lord and our King. Compare this to Antichrist in Revelation 13, who uh, in that description says that he has 10 diadems. And, and he has these 10 diadems, uh, and they're all re- reference to the former kingdoms ruling over Israel and then the, the future kingdom of Antichrist. And so he is trying to boast himself. And in that same description, it talks about how blasphemous he's being before God. And he's boasting himself in this, in this wicked, wicked scene that we have. But that doesn't last because here at the second coming of Christ, those diadems are taken from him as well as he's defeated by, by our conquering king. All right, back to Revelation 19. <clears throat> and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. I love this, that there, there are still unfathomable mysteries of God. I think it's so interesting when, throughout Revelation, when John is told, hey, don't write this. <laughs> okay. God is just so powerful. But be sure of this, it's glorious. That's really all I have to say about it. It's glorious, whatever this name is. If it's befitting, as we're talking about the, the, the befitting glory of our returning king, whatever this name is, it's fitting his glory. And I can't, if we ever do get to know it, I can't wait to figure it out. <clears throat> Verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. So remember the timing here. He is on his way down. The war has not yet commenced. So what is this blood about? Um, there, there are a couple different views on it. Uh, one view is that Jesus, as the commander of the armies of the Lord, uh, this is his defeated enemy's blood on his garments. So it, all, throughout all redemptive history, it's representing the blood of his enemies. And, and um, Isaiah 61, 63, 1-3 is, is kind of the go-to verse for that view. It says, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing color from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the wine presses? I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment. I'm sorry, this is not for the faint of heart here. <laughs> but but this, is, this is the idea that this view is taking here, is that God has defeated his enemies up till this point. And as a badge of, of victory, their blood is on his garment that he is wearing down to, to this final battle. Another view 
is that Jesus, as the defeater of sin and Satan and death at the cross, this is his own blood on the garment. Either way, it's a badge of his preceding victories. And, and it's, it's, it's a badge of, of saying, I have defeated everything before me, and what's next, what lays before me now, is going to be defeated. Jesus wears his battle-stained garments as a telling sign. His enemies have no chance. He is about to put them in their rightful place. And then just as, as John described Jesus in his gospel, he says, and his name is called the Word of God. If there were any doubt who this is that we've been discussing, it is Jesus. And, and the Word of God, speaking of him being the full expression of God, as we see in Hebrews 1.3, that he is the radiance of his glory and the exact, exact representation of his nature. So in, in his... At his first coming, he, he came uh, reflecting God, the compassion and saving power of God. He comes now in the righteous wrath of God to make things right. So another important thing to mention here, did, the, did God's character or nature change? Absolutely not. The focus of his second coming is different, but his righteous wrath is directly connected to his, his compassion and love and holiness. So this isn't some change in God that we're seeing. It is just the f- a fuller picture of who God is. He is righteously wrathful in his perfect love. So the outcome, what will the outcome be? How is this all going to be made right? God comes down. And we see that here in the return of our king. So moving on to point number two, the vindication of his people. <clears throat> and we see that in verse, in verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. This is every believer. This is the church and every redeemed. Here we are. We're going to have some big role, right? We're going to have some big part in this. Finally, we're going to have... No, sorry, we're not. (laughs) Uh, I think when we see that term, and I have to admit, I I fall into this, this term armies in heaven, it can give a sense of accomplishment or necessity on our part. Like, yeah, I want to be this army of of gods. Um, But the only reason we are here and invited to join our warrior king is through his victories. Not our own. Kind of like salvation. It's all about his glory. And so, so um, I, I had mentioned I was going to refer back to the earlier section of Revelation 19. Um, verses 7 and 8 talk about the, the marriage supper, um, uh, the, the marriage of, of the lamb and, uh, and, and his bride. <clears throat> and how... The bride is, is brought in, the redeemed is brought in to be made one with the lamb. And, and just how beautiful it is, is it that all of marriages from history 
of time. And remember, the book, the, the Bible begins with a marriage in Adam and Eve in Genesis, and here ends in marriage in Revelation. And, and every marriage in, in, of all time was always supposed to point to a bigger picture. It was always supposed to point to God and his bride. And here we see the bride and, and Christ together. And, and so the bride's fine linen, um, as we just read in, in, chap, in uh, verse 14, and back in verse 8, I believe it is. In, in verse 8, it also says, It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. Same, same thing that we're looking at here in, in verse 14. We're, we're getting to be, to be that point where we're in our fine linen and we're in our linen that is white and clean because of our warrior's battle garments. He wears blood-spattered garments so that we can wear the fine linen bright and clean. How beautiful is that picture of, of, of a husband caring for his bride and perfectly making her right. Something that I would love to be able to do for my own wife, but I can't because I'm sinful and I fall short. But our God is perfect in that he has brought us together with him. And, and here we see our, our filthy rags have been exchanged for the fine linen, bright and clean. Because, again, because of his blood-spattered garments. What role do we play in this? We follow. So for all of us that want to get in there and get some action, we follow. This is what we have been called to do. We're, we're following these armies in heaven. We're following him on white horses. We are brought into his final victory. What do we bring to the fight? His righteousness. We're on these white horses, not because of anything we have done, but because of what he has accomplished. When, when we would be go, getting ready to go out on, on a mission, you have this pre, pre-mission uh, brief and each um, uh, squad, squad leader would go through, I have, I'm bringing 10, uh, 10 guys to the fight with this, I, we have this weaponry, this weaponry, and each squad would go through their thing. I, I can't, couldn't help but picture this here, that Jesus is there. Yeah, I'm bringing these guys with me, but they're just coming along. I'm going to be the one that is accomplishing this thing. We come weaponless. And, and that is a, a, such a good thing because he will accomplish all of this with perfect effectiveness. As I mentioned with his, the sight, perfect aim, perfect and righteous violence. He doesn't need a thing from us. Again, kind of like our salvation this is all about him. So even the outcome of our vindication is about him. And, and I, I wanted to make a, uh, just a practical application here. This point of following him. 
Isn't this just such a fitting picture for us as Christians? This has been our aim to follow Jesus all of our Christian lives with many failures, uh, with many stumbling over sin and just getting back up and falling again. Oh, how, how beautiful of a picture it is to see us as his bride in fine linen, bright and clean. No more sin holding us back and following our king to victory in glory. So, so the outcome of our vindication isn't only found in the defeating of our slash God's enemies. Uh, that's what often I think of most when I think of God vindicating us. I, I think of making us right through that way. And that is true. But that is not the, the, the only thing that's taking place here. But in our final sinless state that we can never get to until we're there with him. Where we are now um, not able to sin. What, what a glorious time that will be. So currently we are positionally there. But, but it's finally realized and finalized here in Revelation 19. And, and I just wanted to, to cover this really quickly, that the, the different sanctification, the, the different processes of sanctification that we, that we have, number one is the positional sanctification. And that's what, what I'm saying is we have that right now. We cannot be more saved than we are right now. And we see that in Ephesians 2.5. He made us alive in Christ. So we're already there. We're made alive with him. And then we have our progressive sanctification, uh, I think of 2 Corinthians 3.18, how we're being transformed into the image of, of Christ. And then the third is final sanctification. And this is what we see here as we're presented as his bride in fine linen, bright and clean. This is the hope we carry throughout this life as his followers. And it's realizing this hope that we ultimately see our vindication we see that here in Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. He is our vindication. <clears throat> and then it, it all boils down to this, to the, the third point. The absolute rule of our king. Is God completely sovereign now? Yes, absolutely he is. But because of his perfect patience and his love, he's waiting for all, to gather all of his elect to himself. He is being patient in this, in this stage that we're at where we're dealing with sin, where we're dealing with evil, so that he could bring more to himself. So desiring to, to save all that he will now in this, this stage that we're at, he allows the world to continue, even under the uh, pseudo-rulership of, of wicked people. He's using all of those things for his glory and for our good. Um, and we, I, see, I think of um, Revelation 13.5 when we're talking about the Antichrist, that he's given the authority that he has to accomplish what, he, what he's going to do. Because God is already sovereign. But that patience, that time that he's waiting, 
is going to come to an end. And we see that happening here in, in Revelation 19. That God's patience is done. The, waiting, the time to wait is no more. And we see in verse 15, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. So what does he use to defeat the nations raging against him? against the, uh, the Antichrist, his follower, following kings, and all of those in his system, the power of his word, and a rod of iron, <laughs> that's in there too. Um, but the power of his word is what he's going to use to defeat the enemy. And don't confuse that for this not being a physical destruction. It is a physical destruction, but his word accomplishes it. And this should be no surprise to us that his, the power of his word can do this. Um, we see the strength and the power of the Lord's word in, in a few different ways. And in, in the first I, I thought of is in creation. That all throughout Genesis 1, we see, and God said, blank, and then there was blank. God says, and there is. So we see the power of his, his word in creation. And then in, uh, in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. And then I thought of um, Lazarus in John 11, where where he, so so Jesus has, the power of his word is able to bring up the dead. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. This sentence shouldn't make sense. The man who had died came forth. That doesn't (laughs) compute. But because of the power of God's word, the power of Jesus' word, he calls up from the dead. And then when he's arrested, when he came, when, so when he said to them, I am he, what happens? They all fall back on their backs to the ground. If two words can cause hundreds to fall back on, on the ground... What are his words of death going to accomplish? Isaiah eleven four says, "But with the righteous he will judge the poor. With righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked." And then one last example. Jesus, in Matthew twenty-one nineteen, seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. That immediate withering is the immediate crushing of his enemies here in Revelation 19. You know, Christ has spoken many words in, in, through the Gospels and um, in his time here on earth, spoken words of healing, of comfort, of peace. And here he speaks words of death, words of war, of judgment, and does so with perfect precision. And so that we see, uh, it says, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And then it says, and he will rule them, with a rod of iron, 
and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. This is what the outright rule of our king looks like. This is what the outcome will be. It's very graphic, um, and, and we're, we're going to look at it um, more next week. But this, this idea of treading the, the wine, uh, treads the wine press. You, know, you, you picture these grapes in, uh, in this barrel or whatever they're using, and you're crushing those grapes, and it creates this liquid, this flowing liquid that we eventually make into wine, and, and how that, that righteous wrath of God is just going to crush the enemies of God in a way that they cannot escape. <clears throat> So who is this absolute ruler? Well, in the verse, verse 16, it says, And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And now here in, in, at this time at Revelation 19, it's for all the world to know it. There's no escaping who he is anymore. It, it's you're following him or you're crushed. That's what absolute rule looks like. And I can't, I can't give a message like this and not come to the point where we say, we are not, we're not seeking to have more people crushed. I'm, we're, we're going through the text and, and saying what's going to happen. This needs to create in us a passion to, to reach those around us a passion to share the truth of God in their life. And, and God desires to use us as his means to reach people, to rescue them, not of our own doing, of his doing, of his rescuing, before, they're, before it's too late. And thank God it's not up to us. I have family members that I would do almost anything to save and I can't. That's up to God. And thank God for that, because he's going to do a much better job than, than we can. So just to... Oh, I think I forgot a slide there. It's all right. Um, just to summarize this, what will the outcome be? Again, linking it back to Daniel at the end of his time, and just he's overwhelmed with all this information coming at him. And he says, what is going to be the outcome of these events? God is coming back. The return of our king, the vindication of his people, the absolute rule of our king. And so next week, we'll, we'll take a closer look at his victory and how it is, it is certain, it is complete, and it's his crowning victory. So please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your promises. They are, are sure and true. You are good and faithful. And we trust in you, God. And we ask that you would give us the strength to continue, to stay the course, to be faithful, to be more conformed to your image, and ultimately trusting, God, that you are going to make all things right. And that you are going to you're coming back and, and you allow us to be part of it, God. 
We thank you. We ask that this would, would uh, encourage us and, and take us through the rest of this week to uh, uh, strengthen us to, to go out and be used, Lord, for your glory, for your kingdom's sake. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for being with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.